selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hi, film fans. How are you doing today? I hope this finds you well. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. And um, thanks for all the lovely messages as we celebrated our 350th birthday or episode We're in the company of Mr. James Cameron. Now, I did this thing last week and I posted about it because I say this so many times, I'm sorry if I repeat myself. But when I'm doing the interviews, I'm kind of so engrossed in them that I really like enjoying listening back to them once the wonderful Ben who works on the show has uh, done his magic and taken out lots of my M's and U's and whatnot and put little bits of music. And I really enjoyed listening to James Cameron. It's quite interesting as well because I think you can hear as the interview goes on that he sort of not that he warms up, but he kind of just gets into it. And I love the kind of little bits that he gives away about the future Avatar films and his response to the Rose and Jack question. So, yeah, I really appreciate people getting in touch and, and just congratulating us on what we've been able to do with the podcast so far. You know, and believe me, there is so much more that we can do and want to do with it. So we're going to keep doing that. Today I'm over the moon to be joined by Guillermo del Toro and Alexandra Desplat to discuss their wonderful collaboration on Guillermo's take on Pinocchio, which is streaming now on Netflix. I've watched it three times now with Spike and he's slightly addicted to it and keeps kind of, because it's there and he can't, he watches it over and over. Set against the backdrop of the emergence of fascism in Italy, this is a bittersweet tale of the challenges of the father-son relationship, which has a deeply personal feel to it, as you'll hear Gemmel talk about. And as I've already said, it's certainly got my nine-year-old and I talking about the many profound themes that the film raises. As you'd expect, Alexandra's score is magnificent. And we're going to begin with his cue, Pinocchio's Choice.
Hello, good Gamal. Morning. How are you? Very good. Waiting for the Frenchman in England. <laughs> like so, many, so many times out of war. <laughs> is this a regular thing for you? Is it? You're used to it. <laughs> no, no. He's actually very punctual. Last time I was lucky enough to speak to him, he was very punctual. So, yeah, I blame technology. I mean, too. Yeah. How are you today? Very good. Very happy to be in London. Congratulations, both on the film, but also the response that it's had as well. You must be very happy. You know, some movies take three years and you you hope for the best. Movies take more than 15 years. <laughs> you pray for the best. <laughs> I am. Um, I watched the first time I watched it. I watched it with my nine year old. We we just couldn't take our, our eyes and our ears and our our soul really from it. It was just and it was lovely because it really got us talking afterwards. We just we had some really beautiful conversations about Yay! Bonjour, Monsieur. Bonjour, Edith. How are you? Thank you, How are you, my friend? Yeah, that was the idea to 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 hopefully spark conversation in families. Yeah, so yeah. beautiful. I was just saying, Alexander. I watched the uh, the first time I watched the film with my my nine year old, and it was just a as I do some with so many films, but not all all films stir up a, a really beautiful conversation that's gone on as well. And it's really lovely hearing him talk about the film with other people. You know, have you seen? And that's, it's so lovely. So congratulations yeah. to you both. We're very happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you talk, you mentioned there again, we're just in terms of, you know, this, this project has been something that you've been, you've been working on. It's been part of you for such a, such a long time, but what stirred that initial interest and want to to tell this story in your way and in this particular way? Pinocchio was something I wanted to do since I was a kid, a child filmmaker. I started making films at age seven, and I always wanted to do a version of Pinocchio with clay animation or stop motion, because I thought it would be great to do. And uh, of course, my the abyss between my desires and my capabilities <laughs> started to being uh, broached uh, as I aged and I got more uh, possibilities. I think in my 20s, I was already interested, but uh, didn't, I, I had the equipment. I had a stop motion and makeup effects company mm. when I was in my 20s. And it was we were professionally doing commercials and I thought we could do it, but I had no story. I had no. I, I only knew that I wanted to make it not about obedience, but disobedience. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make disobedience a virtue. And I wanted to show that you don't have to transform to be loved. That was it. Then, right after Devil's Backbone, uh, I thought it could, I could do Pinocchio during a time of war. And that would fit those other themes. Uh, but I ended up doing Pan's Labyrinth. And, and then... Around that time, 2004, I discovered a drawing uh, by Gris Grimley that designed the Pinocchio that you see basically on the film. Mm. And it all fell into place right around then. Would you say that each project you've worked on along the way till you really kind of got into this film, almost you brought something along the way with you in terms of yeah. or, it, or it guided you in a way or it told you what you wanted to do or not want to do with this Particular yeah, project. I think, I think that uh, even my relationship with Alexander being in the stage it is, my own relationship to fatherhood being not that of a son, but that of a father, the fact that I lost my dad, the fact that 
my kids were old enough to tell me how I was doing. Mm. Uh, and the review, the reviews were not stellar. You know, all everything happened at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, this movie has a lot of depth uh, for me and a lot of biography because it comes from a very sort of reconciliation with not only fatherhood, but uh, the idea of dying. Yeah. The idea of not being here permanently. Alexander, when did you, can you remember the first conversation you had with Guillermo about it, about when talking about what this, what it would be? And I mean, because this, there is so much music in this, this film is gorgeous. There's the song, there's the, and the way that the, the the score just beautifully kind of dances in and out of the songs as well. And I mean, there's so much to talk about, but but what was the first conversation that you had with Guillermo about it? Thank you, Edith. Uh, uh, you know, Guillermo, uh, he presented me uh, the film as a musical, which I was actually dreaming of doing one day. <laughs> if Guillermo was dreaming, was dreaming of doing Pinocchio, I was dreaming of doing a... Uh, uh, oh, I don't know why my telephone is ringing, I'm sorry. It's me, no. <laughs> yeah. I've got an idea. I want to tell you wrong, wrong answer, Alexander. No, no, thank you. Refinancing. Sorry, it's no, it's, it's I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a hotel room. It's and it's the. Uh, the it's the butler. The it's fine. The, exactly. They want, they want to come to my room. room. At the room. I said no. <laughs> Leave me alone. Uh, I'm with my friends here. Uh, yeah, so it, so it started with the idea of a musical, and, and I, I dreamed of that for, for a long, long time, to be able to mix songs and score and interweave the, the theme or the, or the motifs of, of the songs into the score. And, and it was, we were very lucky because, first of all, Guillermo loves music. He loves music in his films. He loves my music so far, <laughs> and I'm very lucky. And we had fantastic singers, as you, as you have heard. The, the cast is, is stellar and pristine. And I, so I, that's where we started. And we have a great cast. We have a great little boy who can sing. We have a lot of music to write and, and, and songs which will be the pillars of the film, you know, which will explain step by step where we are, what the characters are, and, and take us through the film. Alexander and I, we met physically in person during uh, Rise of the Guardians, the animated movie I co-produced. At Love that film. And he he created such an incredible score, and we talked uh, in a sushi restaurant. Uh, and I said to him, I was talking about Shape of Water with him, and uh, said how much I loved his music. I had spoken or sent my good wishes to Alexander before. When uh, when the, the Queen, I believe, was in competition with Pan's Labyrinth, and I, I spoke to his agent, I said, please tell Alexander that, that if anyone uh, wins other than him, I'll be angry. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, I think that uh, the, I think that Alexander embodies 
what I think music for film is. Mm. Uh, I think this this bullshit uh, about music and film being imperceptible. I I, I think that's a, a fallacy. If you are in favor of that, don't use music, mm. and then it will be imperceptible. I think that a score on film is indivisible, which is a very different word, indivisible from the film. And if done right, which Alexander does every time, it becomes the soul of the film talking. And and in the case of Pinocchio, that had to seamlessly bond the songs and the score mm-hmm. into one, one identity. And that's really, really hard. What came first, the, the the songs, the score, or did you work on them kind of, you know, kind of in parallel, or did one inform no, the, the other? Or no, we started with, with you know drafts of the lyrics by Guillermo and uh, Patrick, and then Guillermo by himself, and I started writing the songs because they had to be animated, and that, mm-hmm. as you know, takes ages. So, uh, so we had to write the songs first, uh, while the movie was still being, uh, in, you know, in process and being made, and I think it took uh, maybe two years before I could write a score or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, but fortunately, when we when we stumbled upon the lullaby, my son, that we immediately knew that that theme was going to become part of the vocabulary of Geppetto Carlo Pinocchio. Mm. Because uh, one way to evoke uh, Carlo while Pinocchio is alive is by using the phrases of my song in the score. opening cue you know which has that it's such an important piece of music because you know it's the opening it's almost kind of the welcoming the musical Mm -hmm. welcoming into the film and it's it's Carlo's story it's Geppetto it's also 
where we start in the film in terms of the kind of sadness in a way of, of the narrative, but it's not, it can't have that much sadness to it musically. It's so delicate in terms of how you kind of have to sort of dance around that. Was that, was that one of the first things you, you kind of created to, you know, to help with tonally for the rest of the film? Because yes. it's such a beautiful piece yeah. of music. Yes, I wanted to find the, the uh, once the songs were written, I wanted to find Carlo Pinocchio's theme, which is the same character, obviously. Yeah. And and uh, we share with, with Guillermo this uh, joyous melancholy, I think, in our life and in our work. And I think that theme is, 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 the, is really the crystallization of, of that joyous melancholy or... Yeah, I can't find other 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 terms than just these two words, you know, this oxymor, oxymoron, yeah. because there's sadness, but it it has to be a deep sadness, something that everybody can understand, can share. We've all lost someone in our lives, and um, there's something that has to be instilled from the beginning: the the innocence of the child, the loss of the child, and how at the same time a new boy will bring joy and will bring hope and uh, so it's all these emotions which are very mm. complex that we had to focus on 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 putting together in this uh, main theme that opens the film of how that theme is arrived at is every session of the scoring starts early in the morning. I walk or take a cab to Alexander's studio in Paris and he plays pieces for me on the piano and then like a metre D in a restaurant says, that's it? You have to <laughs> And then I leave and I see him the next day. And that day he had prepared for he had prepared for me four appetizers. And he played all four appetizers in the piano. And this is the one I teared up to mm. uh, because the best way to represent it is it has to be a an a eulogy mm. of something beautiful. The it carries with it the the impossible beauty of something beyond natural. And at the same time, the sense that you already lost it, and 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 that is 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 the simplicity of the melody has to have, and the profundity it has to evoke. And then I guess from that point as well, you see, you know, you, you're creating it on the piano, but then knowing what the right instrumentation is for for the different characters, for the different cues, for the different moments that come in. There's 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 lovely kind of 
sort of wisps of woodwind. And I love the um the little bit where uh where Ewan's character, where Cricket's just about to sing My Dear Father, and that beautiful guitar just before, you know, he's kind of almost sort of getting himself ready and then it stops. Brilliant. There's lovely kind of character unveiling through the instrumentation that you've used as well and emotion in that as well. Yeah, I suggested to to Guillermo, and, and he was uh, he was happy with this idea to use only wood instruments for the score, and it creates a very you know intimate and 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 uh, special sound to the film, mm-hmm. uh, mixed with all the great sound effects that we have everywhere, and 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 there's a proximity with this with these instruments. They're not loud. They're not you know they don't show off. They're just yeah, they create a kind of jewel case for the characters to. Yeah, and you and you know what I love to do is is actually when I write music for films, it's to follow the characters. That's what I love, and the characters are so deep in in the, the layers, the way the, the the characters are written, and the storyline is so deep that the music just embraces that route. That route, you know, I just follow what they're they're doing. With regards to the, the the voices, I mean the casting is is brilliant. David Bradley is is an an inspired piece of casting for Geppetto. I mean, he's one of those actors that we've watched, you know, over the years in so many things. But there's something just about his voice is you know acting just with his voice sort of thing, and the yeah. the range of it is wonderful. Yeah. Do you mind talking just a little bit about the casting, please? Well, uh, David and I had done two entire series before Pinocchio. We, he was one of my stars in The Strain mm-hmm. uh, for FX Network, and he was one of the stars of Troll Hunters, uh, Tales of Arcadia. And I realized that his voice had this impossible range, and within one line, he can go into an arpeggio and a basso profondo, and a, it kind of cracks. So he can go and say, I told you, you would go to... <laughs> You know, it, it goes in, it's in, in, incredible. I used to imitate him constantly. Uh, but at the same time, I think he is one of the largely unrecognized great actors. Uh, he comes from uh, classical training in British theater. Mm-hmm. He is an, a man of uh, capable of incredible subtlety with his voice. And I knew he would deliver a great Geppetto. Every voice I wanted to carry a world with it. So uh, Christoph Waltz uh, immediately has this Kurt Weill, Wagnerian, uh, bombastic, seductive, br- brutal, intimidate, all of it. And um, Ewan McGregor, uh, I think, has one of the most noble 
uh, heartbreaking voices I've ever heard. Gregory Mann, we had to find him among, amongst hundreds of children, which is always the case in child casting. Yeah. You know, I think that you're, uh, Tilda Swinton, <clears throat> I wrote it for her. Oh. Uh, because she is the only uh, the only supernatural voice I know exists uh, in the world, you know. And uh, then, uh, you know, uh, somebody like Bern Gorman, whom I worked with uh, in Pacific Rim and Crimson Peak is a known entity. Ron Perlman, uh, I mean, is is a known quantity for me. And the the the, the inspired occurrence was Kate Blanchett as the monkey, because uh, it sounds like a great joke, yeah. but it, she actually makes that character work. It's not a one note sidekick or a joke. She gives it tragedy, mm-hmm. and and and. Uh, the way it happened, it was so much fun because we would be recording in the ADR stage in London, the monkey, and I would leave the the the, the booth and Todd Field was coming in to record her as Tar. <laughs> so she she would go from the monkey to Tar within the space of one session. That's amazing. I was lucky enough to chat to her last week about it and it was amazing. And it's just that, you know, that's, that these two films are a great example of how how amazing she is, you know. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, literally within a breath, she can go from one to the other. Phenomenal. How the, impo- way, the, the way she approached it was beautiful because she said, "I don't want to do a sampler of sounds." Yeah. She said, "I want to do it scene by scene." Yeah. And you and you please tell me what the monkey is thinking or feeling, because I don't want to just do noises. Yeah. I want to sort of get get, and I do believe it, it sounds irrationally funny, but she made the performance deep. Yeah, those performances, Alexander. When you're, you know, in terms of just having voice, how does that inspire you? You know, in terms of there's not, you know, you've obviously there's animation. Is it the same for you in terms of your your you're taking the inspiration from 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 the performance as a whole, or, or talk to me a little bit about having those performances, whether it's solely voice, is it finding well, when, when you have these these talents, you just have to to dance with them. You just have to you dance are. with them to be no, it's true. You you and and of, of course in a film like, like Pinocchio, there's so much music, so much going on. You know, you have to to write uh, hours of music, but but you can hook yourself to the actors and, and they just you know take you like in a tango. They take you around because they give so much energy, so many different emotions. They just have to 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 follow what they're doing. It's it's easy somehow. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they're there. Because they're so good. If yeah. the performances were not as good, I would be pushing with the music to make it more. Uh, you don't have to do that. You just have to to be yourself with them and dance with them. It's it's yeah.
there's um there was a lovely thing that you said uh, at one of one of the many acceptance speeches that you've made so far, Guillermo, for the film. Congratulations. Um, was the about animation and about it not being for kids. And I totally agree with you. I think sometimes animation can, you know, and it, with the right film can say so much more. It can kind of, you know, like I was saying earlier about being able to sit with a nine-year-old and find things to talk about that no other kind of production could allow kind of to stir up those questions and those emotions, and those connections with, whether it be a storyline, a character, an emotion, and a moment within a film. For you, what does animation give you the opportunity to do as a storyteller? Well, without any hyperbole, <laughs> it really is a, a superb feat of creation for the entire team. Yeah. You never feel more like a carnival than in animation because you learn to depend on each other. It's an acrobatic feat. Because in real life, when you direct, you're trying to line up the vectors so that an accident happens in front of the lens and you capture life. In animation, you're not only organizing the vectors, you're creating every single piece of motion. Uh, There is no wind to move the protagonist's hair unless there is a wire on a sculpted piece of hair. Mm -hmm. There is no flap of a cape when somebody turns, unless you wire that cape to turn and be animated frame by frame. So the immense creative act is enormous and it's such a powerful medium that is a, a shame that we wasted by infantilizing it voluntarily as an industry into being a domesticated medium and and, and th- disguise him as a genre for kids. It's, it really is shameful. And the animation has given us some of the most powerful images in the history of cinema. And uh, it's a testament to movies like The Red Turtle, which I think is a masterpiece, movies like I Lost My Body, uh, movies like Watership Down. These are pinnacles of animation that show how adult and profound it can be. And Pinocchio wanted to belong in the same category. That's why nobody wanted to do it. Yeah, That's why everybody turned it down, because they would say, is it for kids? And I would say... No, but kids can watch it if their parents talk to them because they it will provoke questions. Most people are looking for a babysitter movie, uh, a movie that they can turn on and leave their kids in front of the TV and not talk to them for two hours. This is not that movie. This movie is a very personal and very profound meditation about how brief life is, mm. how imperfect fathers and imperfect sons can find reconciliation and forgiveness and uh, how disobedience is an urgent virtue. So uh, I think animation is, as particularly stop motion, is analog to live action in that it is using real sets, real props, real wardrobe, linear movement in time and space, uh, and, and real cinematography, etc. But the way we interact with a puppet as an audience and as a creator is more profound. Uh, I think we... It's an act of will uh, to make it move, and it's an act of empathy to believe that it's alive. And and, and an audience watches a puppet enraptured. I love how it's um, my introduction to um, Spike, my son, to your work. So I can't wait to kind of, it's the gateway for him now, for when, you know, when he's old enough to watch whatever films it is of us kind of going down 
the rabbit hole of, of Guillermo's films, which is it's an absolute joy to think about to kind of get the chance to yeah. watch them with him. It's it's what? brilliant. It's so yeah. exciting. And I must say that once they've seen it once, the kids, and yeah. I've seen many kids around, then they can watch it by themselves. And they'll watch, and they'll yeah. watch it and they'll listen to the score on and on well, because they get completely hooked by the film. Yes. And now, now he can watch Hellboy 1, Hellboy 2. <laughs> 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 He's ready for Pacific Rim. Yeah, where, where should you where should we start? Do you think where should I send them? I think um, those, those three. I, I, I think <laughs> Alexander and I unfortunately made a, a, a shape of water that requires a couple of yeah, maybe a few years. Decades. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's so exciting. Before we run out of time, there was one thing that I I, I wanted to ask you was with with regards to film and music. You know, I've been lucky enough to have Alexander on the podcast before, and it's been so great to celebrate his work. But, but for you as a as a storyteller, can you remember the moment as a film fan where stories really started to connect with you that you recognised the importance of that relationship between yeah. the move and image and music? It's incredibly easy because the first record I paid for and owned was Score. No I, I the first two records I bought were The Godfather and Jaws. Because back then, when I was young, I I depended on the records to remember the movies. You couldn't play them back on VHS or on demand, mm -hmm. nothing. The only way you could do is you had the poster, you play the record, you turn off the lights and imagine the movie. You remembered the movie, which is a beautiful way of owning it and becoming one with it. I think that some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard is score music. And uh, and I think uh, the key to it is emotion, and to encompass the whole film, it it is it is not separate from film, is 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 oxygenating the film, and Alexander's does. And he's playing it for you now. You're not in the background. I can. <laughs> he's got it going in the background. <laughs> no, it's funny because you know there. there I have to. I have to. Idols, which is Nino Rota and John Williams. Yes. And I didn't, wow. know, and I didn't know that they were the two records that Guillermo um, no. had bought. No, I didn't know. Yeah. And I was I was just listening to Casanova this morning. Yeah. Oh, so. That's one of the great forgotten Fellinis and one of the great yeah. scores. To what you were saying at Stargame about that that thing of kind of you can't separate the two. So, no. you know, in terms of that's a great example of where the need for each other is so important that when you listen to one, you can see the other. You know, that yeah. kind of idea of like it's yeah. it's there, it's a, it's it's in there already. That's beautiful. Yeah, it, it is it is funny because one of the great of one of the capital offenses of filmmaking is when you temp 
uh, your movie with a with score from uh, Needle Drops. Yeah. And, 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 and when by accident Alexander gets sent a, a file with a temp score, he he calls me and says, "What is this? What is this abomination? It doesn't matter what it is because it is an intruder at yeah. your home. It is like somebody broke into your home. Uh, it is it is not natural. It doesn't belong. If you, if you get used to it, it's a crime, mm. you know." And, and, and I think that when uh, one of the things I most admire about Alexander is that we talk about the score many, many, many times before he plays a note or claims to know a note. Mm. He doesn't say, I'm thinking about something like this. He wants to see the movie. He wants to talk about the movie. He wants to see the dailies. He wants to see the designs. And one morning, one morning, he plays something and you go, it's like seeing a plant coming out of the ground and you go, ah, the movie. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? How do I you know when this. you've hit something, Alexander? How do you know when you've got something that you want to share with Gilmore? What is it that you... I cry. Is it, a, <laughs> <laughs> is it a feeling? Do you feel it? Do you feel, go, yeah, that's... How do you know? You know, I... I... I write sketches on, on notebooks, like these ones, bigger ones. This one is a smaller draft. I'm traveling, but I write, you know, I feel a whole notebook of, of, of bar, little bars, little motifs, things, and I never use them usually. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the way I, I, I kind of put my ideas together. And then one day I think, oh, this is, I think this is right. I can feel that it is, I'm almost hearing the movie without watching it. I can hear it. And many times, actually, I play the movie in my studio from a distance. I'm not watching the screen. I'm just, I'm just hearing the, the dialogue or the sounds. And, and I know that I think I'm there. I'm around where I should be. But before I can play to Guillermo, you know, I need to expand a bit, you know, the, the melody and the things so that it has some, some shape. And the second moment is when Keith comes into my studio, comes down the stairs, comes up on the door. Then I know if I'm right or wrong before even playing it. Wow. Yeah, that's because, awesome. Because what I, because what I do is is to to create bridges with the director, and and it's his vision that comes through my body, my brain, and and I try to mm. re re express that into music. So by having the, the physical contact, it's a, it's a big difference than just being on the phone with a Zoom or. Oh, it's very strange. And writing the songs, it was really great because I I. I, I've been told I'm no lyricist twice. <laughs> once, once, once by Paul Williams, which is quite an authority, and the second time in a really un-French way by Alexander. <laughs> you know, says, we need help. <laughs> but, but the notion, I remember being in his studio next to the piano, and he said, so what is the line that would define this song? And I, I, I would say, well, everything is new to him. And he says, okay, that's good. Let's write it down. Everything is new to me. Yeah. And then he said, and how would it go? And I said, well, he would say, what do you call this? And I said, let's do it, but repeat it twice. What do you call it? Call it. Hmm. See, and then he started playing, what do you call it? Call it. What do, and, and, and then what do you do with it? Smash, rank. And then we started building that way. And, and, and then him and Katz, would make a song out of those sketches. But to me, learning from Alexander about what makes a song a song and not a poem 
and not a piece of uh, prose. It was really interesting. And he said it doesn't it doesn't have to rhyme. Mm. Which to, to me, I was writing all rhyming stuff. <laughs> it doesn't have to rhyme. It just has to have a certain rhythm. You know, I, I learned so much that I will never do it again. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say you're writing an album. No, no. <laughs> I, can, I, I know I can hopefully one day sketch another lyrics for one more song or two, but never, I, I have no delusions. Uh, it, but it was a, a really educational thing. Amazing. Listen, I could talk to you all day about this. It is such a joy to 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 get to talk to you about this beautiful relationship that you have together, and and how uh, how we get to you know enjoy the virtues of that. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Gemma. It was wonderful to meet you, and lovely to see you again, Alexander. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. All the things my eyes can see. Everything is new to me. From Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, that's Everything is New to Me by Alexander Displa, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the director and his composer. My huge thanks to Guillermo and Alexander for taking the time to talk to me. Pinocchio is screening in a few selected cinemas, so seek it out if you can. But as I said, it's also available now on Netflix. I had the most extraordinary experience last week. I was invited to host an event at Abbey Road Studios with the most talented orchestra some of which featured players who recorded the score for it uh, and then I hosted a Q&A afterwards with Alexander Displa with Gemma del Toro and also with Mark Gustafsson who's the other director in the film and comes from this incredible background of stop motion animation so the three of us sat and had the most wonderful conversation about the film following just the score being played. It wasn't played to the film, it was just the music in the room with a small audience. It was amazing. If that's going to be widely available, I'll let you know because if you're a fan of the film, fan of the score, fan of Guillermo's, fan of Alexandra's, then you need to, to hear the conversation. It was absolutely gorgeous. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack in UK. And there is plenty to enjoy on our YouTube channel too. So please do subscribe when you get a moment. I am just waiting on my Wi-Fi. It's like I have to pedal to get this thing to work to upload the Damien Chazelle, but it is on the way, I promise. Next up, we have another bonus episode for you. And I'm really proud of this episode, actually, because this is a film that has connected on so many levels and a film from a story that is almost 100 years old. The book, anyway, is almost 100 years old. And the book was All Quiet on the Western Front. It was adapted by Edward Berger and it's been directed by him too. And the score has been done by Volker Bertelmann, who's previously appeared on the podcast with his sometime composing companion. But 
It was great to get Edward and Volker together to talk about this brilliant film, All Quiet on the Western Front, which, if I can, encourage you to watch on Netflix before listening to the next episode of the podcast because it's kind of quite nice where you get the chance to watch the film before we go into much detail about it. So, Edward Berger, Volker Bertelmann, our next guest on Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 